Well, good morning. Take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation. You got it. Have you guys enjoyed our study in the book of Revelation? I hope you have. Man, I have had a great time in this book. It has been a challenge, but it has been so exciting to study uh, this incredible book, and it's so timely as I believe we're living in the, the last days together. Uh, we just have a couple of chapters left. If you're a guest today, uh, this is the way we predominantly study the Bible here at the Orchard Church as we go to a book of the Bible. We start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we work our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through. And we just have a couple of chapters left here in Revelation. Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 20 today, and then in the next couple of weeks finish uh, 21 and 22. And then we're praying about the next book that will be studying. So you'll be praying with us uh, concerning that. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. It's on page 499. If you're using one of the Bibles, you may have picked up when you came in this morning that we provided for you. I heard a story of an elderly lady that uh, was a, a Christian. She had been a believer for many, many years. Um, she was a widow. Her, her husband had passed away several years before. And uh, she lived in kind of a retirement-type community. And she was known to be a great prayer warrior. And, and she, she prayed the, to the Lord to ask to help meet her needs. And she was on very limited means, you know, on Social Security and, you know, and didn't have a lot of money. And, and so usually at the end of the month, um, she would find herself praying and asking the Lord to provide for her needs and to provide a meal, uh, but, you know, till her next check would come. Well, her next door neighbor um, was an atheist, and he would give her a hard time about being a Christian, about trusting the Lord and believing in God. And she had tried to witness to him and invite him to church, and he would you know, always make fun of her and never, you know, wanted to have anything to do with it. And she just continued to pray for him. And one month, like many months, she was at the very end of the month, and it was a, about a week before her next check would come. And she didn't have any food in the house. And she was out on her patio, and she was praying, and she was asking God, God, would you please provide food for me? Would you provide a meal for me? And her next door neighbor, the atheist, overheard her uh, through his window praying and asking the Lord for these things. And he thought, you know, I've got an idea. I'm going to prove to her once and for all that her belief in God is just ridiculous and that she's praying really to nobody. And so he went down to the grocery store and he bought a bag of groceries for her. He brought them to her front door. He put them on her front step and then he knocked on the door and then he ran around the corner to watch her open the door. She opened the door and there was this, you know, bag of groceries there. She saw the food and immediately she dropped down to her knees and she started praising God. And she said, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for providing. You always come through. You're so amazing. You're so awesome. About that time, he jumped around the corner and he said, aha, I got you. See, there's really no God. I'm the one that went and bought these groceries for you and I delivered them to you. And so this wasn't God that did this. This was me. She looked at him, she looked at the bag of groceries, she knelt down again, and she said, Oh Lord, thank you for providing this food for me, and thank you for sending the devil to deliver the groceries. <laughs> well, speak of the devil, how would you all like to say goodbye to the devil once and for all today in Revelation? This is the last time we're going to have to deal with this character, at least in the book of Revelation, as we're going to see his end today in Revelation chapter 20. I've titled this message, Satan's Last Stand. Now, when we finished a couple of weeks ago, we finished chapter 19. Just let me bring you up to the context, what leads into chapter 20. We saw the return of Christ. We, we've been through chapter 6 through 18, the seven years of tribulation, and all of those things we read about and studied. We get to chapter 19. Jesus Christ comes on a white horse. He brings the armies of heaven. Uh, we're 
riding on white horses with him. We see him defeat the false prophet and the Antichrist. And remember, he took them, he throws them alive into the lake of fire, and he's preparing the way to set up his millennial reign, his thousand-year reign on the earth. And so what we're seeing today as we go into Revelation chapter 20 is, is between the second coming and right as he's establishing his thousand-year millennial reign. And John is going to give us four things, four observations of John that happen in order that we're going to look at today that sets up the thousand-year reign of Christ. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and then jump into Revelation chapter 20 today. Satan's last stand is what we're calling this. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together in uh, your house to be with your people. Lord, we are thankful that you're among us today. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would move in our hearts as we open your word, that you would guide us into all truth. We pray that your word would have free course and be glorified here today that would run swiftly. Lord, we pray that our hearts and minds would be open to your word, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things out of your word today. And Lord, that we'd not just be hearers, but doers of your word, that we would, as Christians, as believers, that we would look forward to and pray for the anticipation of these events that we're studying. Lord, that could be closer than what we even realize, that we would pray, oh Lord, come quickly, and that we realize how we need to live in preparation for your return, how we need to be a witness in preparation for your turn, your return. And Lord, most of all, if there's anyone here today that is not 100% sure of their salvation, whether or not they're going to spend eternity in heaven with you, whether or not they've had their sins forgiven, whether or not their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and they've experienced the second birth and will be a part of the first resurrection we're going to look at today, I pray that today would be the day that they make that decision by faith. They will receive your love and your grace and your mercy into their life. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at four things that John points out here in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And the first thing that John observes is that Satan is restrained. Right after Jesus deals with the Antichrist and the false prophet by throwing them into the lake of fire, he now deals with Satan himself. It says in Revelation 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is who, church? The devil and Satan. Same person. And bound him for how long? A thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and he shut him up. He set a seal on him. He sealed it so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But these things, but after these things, or after the thousand years of him being locked away in the bottomless pit, he must be released for a little while. So the first thing we see is Satan is Restrained. And you'll notice, if you are here last time in Revelation 19, unlike when uh, the false prophet and the Antichrist were thrown directly into the lake of fire, Satan here is not thrown into the lake of fire yet. Now, he will be before we finish today, but he is here thrown into what is called the bottomless pit. And for those of you that have been here for several months through this study, you'll remember we first saw the bottomless pit back in Revelation chapter 9. It's a place where evidently demonic spirits are locked up today, and during the tribulation, some of them will be released like these demonic demonic locust type creatures the bottomless pit comes from the greek word abusos where we get our english word abyss so if you've ever heard the word abyss it's same thing as bottomless pit what i didn't realize till this week in my studies as i was pouring over this that we now know where the bottomless pit is and i was amazed to find out it's right here in colorado 
We've got a picture. Can we put that up there to see this sign? It's right up there by Pikes Peak, evidently. If you go hiking, there's an arrow that says bottomless pit that way. So if you want to know where this is going to be, I guess that's, that's the place. I found that interesting. But uh, in eternity past, Satan, we know, was first cast out of heaven. He was a created angelic being, a worship leader in heaven, and because he rebelled against God, he was cast out of heaven. Now what we read in Revelation uh, chapter 20, he is cast out of the earth, and he is locked away for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. Now, some obvious questions about this would be things like this. Why doesn't Jesus just do away with Satan right here once and for all? Why does he lock him away for a thousand years? Why doesn't he just go ahead and throw him right into the lake of fire with the false prophet and the Antichrist and call it a day? Well, he can't because it's not part of God's plan because at the end of verse 3 it says after the thousand years he's got to be released for a little while. And we're going to learn in just a moment why he's going to be released for a little while. And you know, there's a lot of extremes today when it comes to beliefs about Satan and his work in our lives and the earth and all of that. And, and, and I think one extreme is that people want to blame the devil for everything. You know, somebody does something wrong and what do they say? The devil made me do it. And we need to remember, folks, the devil is one person. He's not um, omnipotent like God. He's not omnipresent like God. He can't be in all places at the same time. He can only be at one place at one time. But he has a lot of helpers called demons. But let's not forget, we all were born with a sin nature called the flesh. And most of the time, that's what gets us in trouble. Most of the time, Satan doesn't have to deal with this because we get ourselves in our own trouble by dealing, giving into our flesh instead of the spirit of God that is in us. So one extreme is to blame the devil for all wrong and everything you know, bad that somebody does. Well, the devil made me do it. The other extreme is people that think that the devil is not at work today. You know, that he was taken care of at the cross and was defeated there and he's been locked away. And yet that's not what the scriptures tell us. I like the way one writer said it. If Satan is bound today, he must have a terribly long chain. And I think we would all agree with that. Let's remember what Peter told us in 1 Peter 5.8. Peter said, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary who? The devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. But here, for a thousand years, Satan will not be able to deceive or lead anybody astray. This sets the stage for Christ to come to rule and reign and bring in his righteous kingdom for a thousand years and Satan is locked away in the bottomless pit. If you're, if you're with me, say yes. So that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that we hear that John tells us, the next thing that will happen after Satan is restrained, the saints will reign with Christ. The saints will reign. Look at Revelation 20 verse 4. John says, and I saw thrones, and they, and you might want to underline that word they, and we'll explain who the they is. They sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. <laughs> Excuse me. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, this was during the tribulation, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. John begins to describe the millennial thousand year reign of Christ and the saints reigning with Christ in this passage. So if you, you've heard that somewhere before, that we're going to rule and reign with Christ, here we see that beginning to take place. Now the phrase a thousand years appears six times in this passage. So God is very specific and I believe very literal in this thousand year rule and reign of Christ on the earth where we will rule and reign with him. No doubt you've heard the phrase, and I've used it, the millennial reign of Christ. If you've heard that phrase, say yes. 
Well, if you go looking in the Bible for the word millennial or millennium, let me save you some time, you're not going to find that. That is an English word that we've, been, we've given to describe this event. The, the word millennium comes from two Latin words, words, mille, which means a thousand, anum, which means year. Thousand years, a millennium, a thousand years. It's, it's not a Bible word, but it's certainly Bible teaching and a Bible principle, just like the, the word trinity. You've heard, certainly heard of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, but if you go looking in the Bible for the word Trinity, it's not there, but the teaching is certainly there and the principle is there. If you go looking in the Bible for the word rapture, you won't find the word rapture, but you certainly find the teaching of the word rapture. Rapture is from the Latin raptio, which means to be caught up. Same deal with millennium. So I just wanted to clear that up for everyone. What we're reading about is the millennial thousand year reign of Christ, where he will come back to the earth at his second coming. He will literally physically establish his rule and reign from Jerusalem and finally get the glory that he did not get the first time. That's what we're talking about here. And and, and this is something that confused the Jewish nation. Because it had been talked about in the Old Testament, the scriptures, that at one point, I mean, this this kingdom that, that we're reading about here has been talked about even before Jesus came the first time. They were talking about this second time and this thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And so when Jesus came the first time, a lot of the Jews got confused because they thought, you know, he was bringing that kingdom right then. And, and then they didn't believe who he was. And that's partly why he was crucified. And the first time we know Jesus didn't bring a literal kingdom, but he brought a spiritual kingdom that we're all a part of when we put our faith and trust in Christ, the kingdom of God. But here we are going to see the actual literal kingdom brought in, the return of Christ and this thousand-year reign. Well, one of the questions people want to know is, who is going to rule and reign with Christ? You know, is that going to be you? Is that going to be me? Who's it going to be? Well, verse 5 and 6 give us some answers to that. Now watch this. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. The rest of the dead would be all the unbelievers that Christ defeated when he came back at the second coming. We we studied that before in the other chapters. Um, They stay in the graves. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Years. So who is going to rule and reign with Christ? Well, it's simple to figure this out. It's everyone who is a part of the first resurrection. You see, the Bible never talks about a general resurrection. It talks about two resurrections, a first resurrection and a second resurrection. And listen, folks, if you don't hear anything else I say today, say this. You need to make sure you're a part of the first resurrection. And you'll understand that a little more here in just a moment. And so it's all those who are part of the first resurrection that will get to rule and reign with Christ. And the first resurrection and the second resurrection are separated by a thousand years. The millennial reign. So let's let's talk about this first resurrection. Now Jesus talked about it in John chapter 5 verse 28. And he said this, Do not marvel at this or be surprised by it. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. They'll be resurrected and come forth. Those who have done good or know the Lord to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil who do not know the Lord have not had their sins forgiven to the resurrection of condemnation. One's a good resurrection. One is a bad resurrection. So this first resurrection is, contains all the people who will get to rule and reign with Christ. Now, let me help you so you're not confused with what's going on here. Because some people get confused about the first resurrection because they think it's a moment in time. 
that it happens in a moment. That's the first resurrection. But many times in the Bible, events are described not about talking about a moment in time, but a period of time. And that's what's happening with the first resurrection. It's not a moment in time, it's a period of time. You say, okay, what's the period of time? It begins, it began 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead. It is continued for 2,000 years and will continue up to the second coming of Christ based on all of those who put their faith in the one who rose from the dead in the first place, which was Jesus Christ. Everyone who has put their faith in Christ, is part of the first resurrection. And those are the ones who will rule and reign with Christ. If you're with me, say yes. And let me give you these to you one by one. You have them in your notes. First of all, we know the New Testament saints will rule and reign with Christ. Verse 4, that's the they. And I saw thrones and they sat on them. Remember the context of everything we've been studying. And remember who came back with Christ at the second coming, riding on white horses? That was the Christians, that was the church, the New Testament believers, Revelation 5.10, go check it out. It specifically says that we as the church will rule and reign with Christ. So we know all New Testament believers will be a part of the first resurrection. Our resurrection takes place at the rapture, unless we are raptured. Those who have died in Christ will be resurrected, we know, at the rapture. They'll be the first ones to come out of the grave. First Thessalonians 4 talks about that. That's being part of the first resurrection. So we, today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you're a New Testament believer. You get to be part of the first resurrection. You can be excited about that. You get to rule and reign with Christ. Not only do New Testament believers get to rule and reign with Christ, but Old Testament believers get to rule and reign with Christ. Old Testament saints. We're not going to take time to go over there. Check it out later. I've given you the references. But Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 through 4, talks about the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. Now, this is where some people get confused. And, and there's different beliefs on this. Uh, and I'll tell you what, I, where I lead. I don't believe that Old Testament believers will be resurrected at the rapture. The Bible says that the dead in Christ will rise. I believe the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ to join us. That's when their bodies will be resurrected. That's their first resurrection. So Old Testament saints, New Testament saints will all be there. Part of the first resurrection and get to rule and reign with Christ. And then there's one more group that gets to rule and reign with Christ. And that is the tribulation saints. The tribulation believers will reign with Christ. Look at verse 4 at the end of it. It talks about those who were beheaded or executed during the tribulation because they wouldn't take the mark of the beast and they were killed. Their body and soul and spirit, just like us, immediately goes to heaven. But at the second coming, guess what? They get raised from the dead. That, they're part of that first resurrection. And they get to go right into the millennium and rule and reign with Christ. And then there's one other group that's part of this same group. And this is where, what a lot of people miss. Not every believer, not every person that comes to Christ, and we've seen many people come to Christ through our study of Revelation, even during the tribulation, because we serve such an incredible God of mercy, love, and grace, He still gives people an opportunity. And we see many come to Christ. Many of them will give their lives for Christ, because the Antichrist will have them killed. But not all of them. Some of them will be able to escape the Antichrist. Some of them will find places to hide. They'll be able to, to, to you know, run away. And many of them will be alive at the second coming of Christ when he defeats everybody else. They're still alive. They get to go right into the millennium with us. They don't need to be resurrected. They're still alive. If that makes sense, say yes. So they join us as well. So all believers 
Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation saints are all part of the first resurrection and all get to rule and reign with Christ according to the scriptures in the millennial kingdom. And some of them will go right into it because they haven't even died. And that's going to be very important to understand when we see something in just a moment. Okay. So not only do those in the first resurrection get to rule and reign with Christ, but here's maybe some of the best news of all. Those who are ruling and reigning with Christ get to escape the second death. Second death, you say, what is the second death? Well, we're going to see in detail in just a moment what the second death is. But the second death is eternal separation from God in a very horrible place. Look at the end of verse 6. And it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will rule or shall be priest of God and Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And I think we've already put it on the screen. And I love this. When you experience the second birth, and the second birth is the spiritual birth when you accept Christ, you get to escape the second death. Can we say amen to that? When you experience the second birth, you had a first birth that, that was physical. If you want to escape the second death, you have to have a second birth which is spiritual. Remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and, and John and he said, you must be born again spiritually and when that happens you escape the second death you see if you're born twice you only die once but if you're only born once and you're not born again you die twice and we're going to see that sad truth in just a moment so what is this millennium going to be like i mean if we're going to rule and reign with christ for a thousand years on this earth you know, I mean, and some of you, I, I thought about this week, uh, you know, Barry and I were talking about this a little bit. I said, you know, if you kind of think about it, like those loved ones and friends and family that have passed away and they've been with Jesus for a long time now. And then, you know, we get to heaven, we get raptured and we're up there for seven years during the tribulation. And then Jesus says, OK, let's go. We're coming back to earth. You know, you've been in heaven for a while. That, that might seem like a bit of a bummer. I don't want to leave here and go back there. Who wants to do that? This is what I've been, unless you understand what's going to happen on this earth during the millennium because it's going to be nothing like it is now. Would you all be interested in knowing some of the details of what's going to happen during the millennium? I mean, if we're going to be stuck here for a thousand years, ten times longer than any of us are now, I'd like to know what's going to happen. Amen? So let me give you a few things real quick. Now, we're, this is not going to be exhaustive, but I just kind of want to give you a snapshot of what this earth is going to be like and what we're going to experience during this thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, and we're going to be here with Him. And there are many scriptures that talk about this. The book of Psalms has a lot to say about it. Zechariah, many of the prophets. Isaiah, there's a ton in Isaiah about this. But let me just tell you, if you don't get anything else, get this. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden was before Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus is going to put back things and make them right like he intended them to be before we messed it up. So it's nothing like what we're experiencing today, the evil and, and the death and the sorrow and the pain and difficulties. It's going to be a Garden of Eden-like atmosphere. And, and let me just give you some things, and you can go look at these verses yourself to study this a little further. First of all, we know Jesus will personally rule and reign. Won't it be nice when Jesus is in charge and not any other rulers of this world, not any other political leaders? Jesus Christ will be the one who will personally rule and reign. Luke talks about this, Revelation 19.15. We saw it last week. says he'll rule and reign. It will be a time, a thousand years of peace. 
I mean, peace unlike this earth has ever experienced. I mean, ever since Adam and Eve fell, and then the next thing you see is you got brothers killing each other. People have been killing each other, and wars, and wars, and more wars, and World War One and World War Two and Vietnam, and Korea, and, you know, I mean, it just goes on, and on, and on, and on, and everybody's like, we need peace, we need peace, you know, Christmas time, you know, you hear the phrase, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Listen, folks, there is not going to be peace on this earth until the Prince of Peace is on this earth. And when he's here, it will be a complete time of peace. Micah and Isaiah both talk about this. It will be a time during the millennium where, it will, where there will be long human life, longevity of life. Uh, Isaiah 65.20 says that during the millennial reign of Christ, because remember back before Adam and Eve sinned and before the flood took place, we read about people in the Bible living seven, eight, nine hundred years. Remember Methuselah lived like 989 years. That's almost the entire time of the millennium. And it's going to be like that again. It says in Isaiah that a child, that if somebody dies at 100 years old, they're considered a child, an infant. So I believe people will live very long lives. Maybe no one's even going to die. We don't don't know for sure that everybody's just going to live through that period of time. Longevity of life. It's going to be a time where there's going to be incredible harmony, not only among mankind, but among the animals. And maybe you've heard this before, and some people get confused and they think this is talking about heaven but it's really talking literally about the earth and the thousand year millennial reign of christ and it says in isaiah eleven six, listen to how detailed it is the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb the wolf and the lamb are going to be buddies frolicking on the hillside you don't see that today the wolf is eating the lamb not during the millennium the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. They're going to be friends. They're going to be pals. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. I mean, today most of our pets are dogs and cats. In the millennium, your kids are going to have lions for pets. And tigers and bears. Oh my. Yeah, I, sorry, I had to go there. I think we got a picture. Can we put that picture up there? I mean, this, there's, there's a picture, a painting that somebody did of the millennium with this, this little child. Is lead, because animals will not be ferocious. They'll not be killing each other, and they'll not be trying to kill us, and we'll not be trying to kill them. It'll be a time of harmony. The Bible says the cow and the bear are going to graze. Now, that's interesting. Animals are not going to be eating each other anymore. We're not going to be eating them anymore, and they're going to graze on the fields. And this is kind of controversial and a lot of different beliefs about this, but I think there's some pretty good scriptural evidence, 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 that before the fall of Adam and Eve, they were probably vegetarians. So for all you vegetarians, you're going to get what you've always wanted. Everybody to be vegetarians. And and I mean, that's probably what's going to happen. And we're not going to be killing the animals. There There was no death until Adam and Eve fell and they sinned. There was no death. And so we're probably, you know... They're going to have to discontinue the commercial. Beef, it's what's for dinner. You know, that's not going to be played during the millennium because... We're probably not going to be eating beef. We're not going to be eating animals and and things like that. The scriptures go on to say, Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lions shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. I don't know about that. (laughs) I mean, it's definitely going to be a supernatural time for me to want my kids to play with snakes. And I ain't playing with snakes. I, I don't know about y'all, but when I think snakes, I think Satan. And so, yeah, I'm just like, you know, this week, th- just this it's amazing how God gives you illustrations. Just this last week, I, I was um, getting ready uh, for work, and, and Shelly, 
My wife comes bursting upstairs, and she had went out to the garage to do something, and she comes running in, and she goes, there's a snake in our garage! There's a snake in our garage! And I'm like, nah, uh She's like, yes! She's like, I opened the back door, and the snake was in our garage. And I'm like, well, was it a little garter? She's like, no, it's like huge, you know? And so I had to go open the garage, and it was a garter snake, and, you know, it, it was pretty good size. And, you know, I was just freaked out, but I had to be manly. So I'm like, oh, I get it. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I'm like, who can I call, you know, to come get... I hate snakes, but during the millennium, evidently, we're going to love snakes, and, you know, it's not going to be a problem. Uh, during the millennium, holiness will prevail. I mean, we can't even fathom or imagine a world where holiness and righteousness and purity and no evil... It, but that's what the Bible says about the millennium. In Isaiah 35, 8, it says there will be a highway of holiness, and we'll be on that highway together. Now, now, now let me help you here, because this is important you understand this. During the millennium, Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign. He's going to reign in righteousness and peace and harmony and holiness. And I mean, it's going to be incredible. Now, most of us will be in our glorified bodies, because either we died and were with the Lord and resurrected, or we were in the rapture. And most of us, the only ones that won't be in glorified bodies are the ones who accepted Christ during the tribulation, didn't die, and go right into the millennium. Are you with me? And those people, just like us, because they haven't died, they will be in physical bodies. Which means they will have a sin nature still. And they will have a flesh. Now, because Jesus is ruling and reigning, he's on the throne, and he's ruling righteously, righteously, and he knows and sees everything, people are not going to want to get out of line. And so it's going to be a time where holiness will prevail. But I like the, one, one, the way one writer put it. During the millennium, the curse of sin will not be fully removed, but it will be firmly restrained. And you'll understand that a little more in just a moment. But it will be a time of prevailing holiness. And then, this is my favorite part of the millennium and what we really ought to all look forward to, number six. Everyone, everyone, not most, not some, everyone during the millennium will worship Jesus. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, we're going to all worship Jesus. Isaiah 66, 23 says, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. I mean, there's not going to be any differences of religion. There's not going to be any debates. Well, you have your God and I have my God. You have your beliefs. No. It's all about Jesus. Won't that be nice? We'll all sing the same songs and we'll all worship the same Jesus and the same God. Now, some of you may wonder, well, why, why a millennial period? I mean, why don't we just get to go right off to heaven, you know, and just, just skip the whole millennial earth thing? Well, there's several reasons. First of all, it's to show us what was intended, I believe what God had intended for this earth if we hadn't messed it up, what it could have been like. And we'll see that for a thousand years. Another reason we have the millennium is because Jesus always fulfills his promises. And throughout the word of God, he promises to come back to the earth and reign for a thousand years. And if that's what Jesus says in his word, that's what he's going to do. Amen? Because he's always true to his word. So it fulfills the promise of scripture. Another reason for the thousand year millennium, and I've mentioned this before, but let's not forget it. It answers the prayers that the church has been praying for 2,000 years. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've been praying that 
you know what? This is a fulfillment of that very prayer. And most of all, it's the time where Christ will finally get the glory he deserves that he didn't get the first time that he came. So there's many practical reasons for the millennium. So we've seen that Satan will first be restrained. Then the saints will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then we see the third observation of John. Satan, at the end of the thousand years, will revolt. Remember, he was locked away in the bottomless pit for a thousand years because he needed to be released just for a moment. And here is that moment where Satan, and this is truly Satan's last stand. Revelation 20, verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, the bottomless pit, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. That's just another way of saying all around the world. Gog and Magog. Now, I, I, I don't have time to get into Gog and Magog. Ezekiel chapter 38 talks about Gog and Magog. And it talks about you know this, this war that's going to come on Israel. Bible teachers and scholars vary on when they think this is going to happen. I think it's probably going to happen before the tribulation. The, I don't believe this Gog and Magog here is the same one. It's just using the same kind of symbolic language. An army coming against Israel. It's kind of like if we were to say, oh, that's their water gate. Well, everybody knows what that means. That's the kind of phrase here. And so I know some of you would ask me about that if I didn't say something. So there's my mention of it. And then he's going to come. He's going to gather this army together to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. So there's going to be a lot of people involved in this battle. They went on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. That would be Jerusalem where Jesus is ruling and reigning. So they, they, they gather together to battle against Jesus, and then look what happens next. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Nice try. This is Satan's last stand. This truly is Satan's last stand, as he gathers an army of people to try to fight against Jesus one last time at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign. He gathers these people to surround Jerusalem. Now, one question is, okay... Everybody's been under the rule and reign of Christ and been part of his kingdom. Where is Satan going to get these people from that make up this army? Where, where are these people coming from? Well, remember I told you about the people that went alive straight into the millennium and they had physical bodies and they had a flesh? Well, guess what? They're going to have children during the millennium. And, and they're going to have babies, and their babies are going to have babies. And remember, we're going to live long lives, eight, nine hundred years. Can you imagine what the population of the earth may be repopulated to at this point? And just as every one of us had a, had a choice we had to make between Jesus or Satan, they have to make a choice. Does that all make sense now? If it does, say yes. And, and those people have to make a decision, and Satan gets the same opportunity at them that he had at us. And unfortunately, we don't know exactly how many, but it sounds like quite a few of them will be deceived. And I have a fly that loves me this morning. <laughs> I just hope I don't swallow him. That'd really be bad. They'll be deceived, and they will become part of this, this army. Now, as I was studying this even this week, I'm thinking, how could people who've been led by Jesus in this incredible millennial kingdom for a thousand years turn on Jesus and follow Satan? And, and here's the problem, and it's the same problem that we have today. They will be people who will conform outwardly to righteousness and holiness, and it appears they're following Jesus, but inwardly, their heart really hasn't changed. And without there being a true, genuine heart change, there is no change. Because Jesus always deals with the heart. For with the, the Bible says, with the heart man believes 
unto righteousness. And because Jesus is ruling and reigning, he knows everything, and the prevailing atmosphere will be holiness, they're just going to kind of get in line. But many of them, their hearts will not be in line, and they'll have to make a decision. We're reminded of Jeremiah 17, 9, that says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, during the millennium, even in a perfect environment, you cannot produce a perfect heart. Only Jesus and his spirit working individually in someone's heart can make the difference. It's going to be that way in the millennium, and it's the same way today. You know, and, and this is why, and I want to try to be an encouragement practically to some of you in your marriage, um, in your family, as parents. Oftentimes I counsel with families and, and we, count, you know, we counsel with families here. My father-in-law who's our care pastor counsels with families. And, and you'll have you know, what seems to be this perfect marriage and, and everything is going great and then all of a sudden one person decides to just go off the deep end, bail out of the marriage. Even though maybe the other person, I mean nobody's perfect, but it seems like, man, they've tried to do everything right. And yet someone still falls away. And it can really make this other person feel guilty. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Listen, if people are going to fall away from Jesus during the millennium, then people can fall away now. And I'm not talking about losing salvation. I'm just talking about everybody has to make an individual choice of their decisions. It breaks families' hearts that sometimes, you know, you have parents and they're raising their kids and they're trying to raise them in church and to love God and to know God and, and do right. And, you know, maybe they'll have two or three kids and, man, two of them are just doing great for God and one of them doesn't want to have anything to do with God. And sometimes parents feel so guilty about that. What did I do wrong? You see, a perfect environment does not create a perfect heart. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. So we just need to pray that Jesus and his spirit will work in the hearts and lives of people and our families and our marriages. Now, one of the questions that's obvious to ask is, why, why would God allow Satan one last opportunity to mess with these people? You know, why, why didn't he just do away with him and don't even let him loose for a little bit? It's simple. We have a God that loves us so much, he gives us a, you can say the word, a choice. He gives us a choice. He, does, he didn't create robots. He doesn't make anybody follow him. He doesn't make anybody love him. He doesn't make anybody choose him. He gives them a choice. Just like you and I today have a choice whether to accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord or Savior or not, or reject him, they will have a choice and they will have a decision. And, and you guys can understand this. You, you really can. Here's, here, think of it this way. Do you, those of you that are married, do you want your spouse to love you and adore you because they have to, because they're your spouse and that's what they're supposed to do, or because they choose to? Do you want your kids' parents to love you because they have to? You're my kids, you got to love me. Do you want them to love you because they, they have to, or because they choose to and they want to? God, the answer to that is obvious. And God is no different. But God will deal with Satan's last stand and his army very swiftly. It just simply says he'll devour them with fire. And then, verse 10, look what he does to Satan. He does finally send him to the same place that he sent the false prophet and the Antichrist. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet already are. They've been there a thousand years. And they will be tormented day and night forever. That's the end of Satan right there. That's the last time we see him in the Bible. Now, I know we only got a couple chapters left. 
But that is his final end and his last stand. Now, as we close today, God is about to wrap up human history with one final event. Satan, we've seen, is restrained. The saints will reign. Satan will revolt. And then number four, sinners are requited. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. You've heard of being acquitted? This is the opposite. Acquitted means you're set free. You're let off. Requited means you have to pay. You have to pay up. Sinners are requited. Revelation 20, verse 11 to 13. Probably some of the most sober scriptures in the Bible. If we weren't studying the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, I can tell you all, I would choose to skip this. But that's not how we roll around here. We've got to be faithful to God's word. And this is what it says. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whom the, whose the face of the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And, and I think another way to read this is no place for people to hide. There was nowhere to hide. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. By the things which were written in the books, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to their works. Romans 6.23, you know the verse. For the wages or the payment of sin is what, church? Death. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have to choose one of those two. Receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ or pay for our sins, which is called death. You see, we may not like this, but this is, this is God's, God's rules. He makes the rules. He, it's his, his plan. You see, if you break man's laws, you pay man's penalty. If you break God's law... You pay God's penalty. And he says the penalty is death. But the good news is you don't have to face that. You can have eternal life. And here we read about what you probably heard is called the great white throne judgment. This is where the second resurrection takes place. You do not want to be a part of the second resurrection. You do not want to stand at the great white throne judgment. And don't be confused with the great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, we looked at that several weeks ago, is for all believers to be rewarded for the good things we did for the Lord. The judgment seat of Christ, or excuse me, the great white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. No believers will be standing at the great white throne judgment according to the scriptures. It's only for those who've rejected the gift of salvation and now have to pay for their sins themselves in the courtroom that God will hold, court, at the great white throne judgment. But no believers will be at this judgment. And I, I, this is not fun to talk about. It's not enjoyable to talk about. Uh, there are many other things in scriptures I like to talk about. It's not comfortable, but we've said it before here at the Orchard Church. Our goal when we study the Bible is not to be comfortable. It's to be biblical. And I think many of you would not be here if it weren't for that. And so let's be biblical. And, you know, it, it's sad that, that too many people today, and there's even new books that have been written recently, try to discount hell, discount the lake of fire, discount that, that people will go to a place eternally separated from God forever because it's not comfortable, but it certainly is biblical. And, you know, Jesus taught more about hell than he did heaven. You know why? He didn't want anybody to go there. And he was doing everything he could to keep people from going there. 
Now, how will these people be judged and who will judge them? Well, verse 11 lets us know who's going to judge them, who's sitting on the throne. It's him, capital H-I-M, it's Jesus. We know this because in John 5, 22, it says that the Father has given judgment to his Son. It will be Jesus doing the judging. Verse 12 tells us what the evidence will be to judge these people who have rejected Christ for all of human history. It says that books will be open. Okay, well, what are these books? Let me give them to you quickly. First of all, the book of God will be open. That's the Bible, the word of God. John 12, 48 says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him when? In the last day. They will be judged by the word of God. They'll be reminded of all the times they heard the Bible, they heard the gospel, they had an opportunity to receive Christ, and yet they said, no, not for me. I'll take my chances. And that will be evidence against them because they rejected the free gift of salvation. You say, and I hear this question all the time, what about people in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa and they don't even have a Bible in their language? What about them? Well, you know what Romans chapter 2 says? That God in his creation made himself available to let people know that he exists. And that will, they'll be reminded of those things. You see, the road which leads to heaven may be narrow, but it's very well marked. And so the book, the word of God will be open. There's another book, books that will be open. The book of works, the books of works will be open. This is talked about in verse 12 and 13, that, that, that other books were open. These books in verse 12 and 13, they evidently contain everything that, ev- that these people have ever done. All the good, all the bad. Now, now, let me make sure you understand and are reminded biblically that we are not saved by our works. The Bible is clear about that over and over again. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. We are not saved by works. We're saved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're saved by grace through faith when we put our faith and trust in Him. However, if you reject that then you will be judged by your works. And works will never, never get you into heaven. And they'll never help you attain eternal life. These works then, why will God then judge them by their works? And I believe that as I studied this and looked at this, and many Bible scholars agree, that it seems apparent here they will be judged according to their works because they will be punished. The degree of punishment in hell will be based upon all the things they did. Because see, God is just and he's fair. And so those that were more... Now, everybody's going to the same place that rejects Christ, but some of them evidently are going to have it a little worse. It's going to be a little hotter than others are going to have it. Check out Matthew chapter 11. Uh, not right now, but later today you'll see that where Jesus talks about it being more difficult from some cities and some people than, than others. And so evidently these people's works are going to determine the degree of punishment that they're going to face in hell. Ecclesiastes 12.14 12, says this, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now listen, as I studied this and I thought about this as a Christian, here is what came to my mind. Thank God we're not going to be judged by our works. Thank God that we're not going to stand for God. He's going to pour all these things out and show all the good and all the bad. No, we're going to be judged according to what Jesus did. And the only thing, and all the bad is burned up, the Bible says, and the only thing that's going to last is the good, and we're rewarded for that. Here's the deal. These sinners are being requited, but as Christians, we've been acquitted. We've been acquitted of our sins and given eternal life. And then there's one more book, and you've heard of this book before. We've talked about it. The book of life is opened. Let us see. The book of life in verse 12 
It says another book was opened, the book of life. And this is the final piece of evidence that will condemn those who rejected Christ. He's like, okay, we've looked at their works. You know, we, we, we've checked that out. We've reminded them of all the times they rejected salvation. But just to make sure, let's look at the book. The Lamb's Book of Life. Because, I mean, this is the litmus test. If your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, you have eternal life. If it's not, you don't. It's that simple. The most important question every one of you need to answer this morning before you leave is, do I know without a shadow of a doubt my name is in the Lamb's Book of Life? And they'll open that up. Now, here's the deal. God already knows the answer, but he's just using it as evidence to show them none of their names will be found. None of them. And this judgment at the great white throne is really more of a sentencing at this point. And it's too late. And we see the sentence carried out in verse 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death for all those who rejected Christ. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I'll say it again. Born twice, you only have to die once. If you're only born once, you have to die twice. The second death is when they're cast in the lake of fire. And I know you've heard this statement before. And let me remind you, church, of this. God does not send people to hell. People send themselves there when they reject the mercy and love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. They make their choice. When they choose not to have their name in the Lamb's Book of Life, when they choose not to accept the free gift, that's what sends them to this place. Listen to what Jesus said in John 3, 16 through 18. You've heard part of this, but listen to all of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. You don't have to go to the lake of fire, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Might be saved from this. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe... He's condemned already. You see, listen, y'all, here's the deal. When we came into this earth, we were condemned. Jesus is trying to not condemn us. He's trying to uncondemn us. He's trying to get us out of the eternal destination that awaits all of us without Christ. Listen, God is not the bad guy. He's the good guy. He's the good guy. He's the one that is, is trying to save us from this. Because he, he says he's, he who does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 5, 24, most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. I am so glad we can close on that good news this morning. When you accept Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of any of this. You can be acquitted Today is your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Have you experienced the second birth so you don't have to face the second death? I want to close with a story. I know you all are kind of packing up, but you're going to like this story. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven. And in the book, there's a story of a lady named Ruth Ann Medsker. She was a professional singer. This is a true story. <laughs> and she was invited to sing at a lot of different places and a lot of different weddings. And she got invited to sing at this very special wedding of a very, very wealthy businessman in Seattle, Washington. Uh, she knew the wedding was going to be incredible. It was going to be extravagant and opulent. And, and so she accepted the invitation. She also found out that the reception of the wedding, which she knew was going to be 
you know, off the hook. It was going to be incredible, unlike any reception she had ever been to. It was going to be held at Seattle's Columbia Tower, the largest building in the Northwest. And it was going to be held on the top two floors. And she knew it was going to be amazing. And she invited her husband to come along with her. She said, you don't want to miss this one. You know, come with me. And so he decided to go to the wedding. And they were really looking forward to the reception to follow. And as they got, she sang at the wedding and everything went great. It was amazing. And then they went over to the Columbia Tower. They went up, you know, to the top two floors. And and of those two floors, the the main reception was going to be on the top floor. And everybody was kind of waiting for the bride and groom to get their pictures done and for them to arrive. And they were on the the bottom floor below that that other floor. And and they're waiting there. And, I mean, there were, you know, all these waiters and waitresses going around. And waiters are in their tuxes. You know, they've got beverages and hors d'oeuvres. And, you know, I mean, all just it's just incredible. And so finally the bride and groom, they arrive. And there was this brass staircase that winded up to the second floor. And there was a ribbon in front of it. And no one was able to go up to the main reception floor until the ribbon was cut by the bride and the groom. So the bride and groom arrive and everybody, yay! And they introduce them and then they go and they they cut the ribbon. And then they they walk up the staircase and then everyone else is able to to, to come up the staircase. At the top of the staircase, there was a a maitre d', if you will. and, and, And standing there, she was standing there at a podium. Much like this. And there was a very elaborate book that was opened in front of her. And one by one, people would give their name. She would look in this elaborate book, this guest book, and see their name and allow them to go into this incredible reception. Well, when Ruth Ann and her husband got up to the line, they gave their names. And the maitre d' looked and she said, you know, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't see your name here. Could you, could you spell your last name? And they spelled their last name, and she looked again, and she said, I'm sorry, but your, your name is not here. It's, I, I can't find it you know, anywhere in, in the book. And she said, there must be a mistake. I mean, I just sang at the wedding. I, I was a singer. I was, I was in the wedding. And the maitre d' said, Madam, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If your name is not in this book, you cannot attend the reception. And so she wave for a waiter to come over and said, would you please escort this couple? And she thought maybe she was, they were going to get to sneak in. And the waiter came and, and took them and actually walked them through the reception. And as they're walking through the reception area and they're seeing people seated, they see this incredible buffet. I mean, it was, it was more food they had ever seen in their life and ice sculptures and, I mean, every kind of food and meat. and ve- It was just unbelievable. And they're looking at it and they're thinking they're getting taken to a table. And he actually walks through and he goes in the back kitchen area where there was a service element. Elevator. And he pushed the button on the service elevator and it opened up and he pushed G for ground floor. And he put them in the elevator and he closed the door and down they went. They got into the car and they were very quiet and disappointed. And finally the husband said to Ruth Ann, said, Ruth Ann, what, what happened back there? And she began to sob and she began to, to cry and she said, You know, the invitation came in the mail a month ago and I was so busy I forgot to RSVP. But I thought, after all, you know, I'm the singer in the wedding. You know, I thought, surely I'm going to get in. But she didn't. We don't really need to say much more, do we? There's going to be a day that's going to be much more important than any wedding reception. It's going to be called Eternity in Heaven. And a book is going to be open. And your name is either there or it's not. And I ask you today, have you made your reservation? Here's the great news. God is still taking reservations today. You can put your name in the book today. Would you bow your heads with me?